Welcome to Food Farms and Chefs radio show, where we highlight everyone from the top industry leaders to startups and farmers that make it all possible with Chef Jean Blum and photojournalist Amaris Pollock. Hi, and welcome back to Food Farms and Chefs. I am very, very excited and proud to have the honor to speak with somebody who is a New Jersey resident who has been making waves um, on several fronts in the hospitality industry and also within her community, Marilyn Schlossback. <laughs> Sorry, I like notoriously mess up um, people's <laughs> names. But uh, Marilyn, thank you for joining us on Food Farms and Chefs. Thank you for having me. And don't worry about the name. Everybody <laughs> pronounces it different, including my parents. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So... I mean, I, you're everything that you've done. There is so many things you've, you've involved yourself with in the culinary industry. Um, but outside of like being an executive chef and owner, well, owner of several restaurants. And I know there's a, a little put a, put a pin in their notation. Um, you also do a lot for the community and um, you like you're, you're you've been on the the board for New Jersey's um restaurant industry like the accolades that I can give you and that everyone has given you can go for we can probably have you on for hours on end but um how did you get started in this business Oh boy. Um, well, I, I was supposed to go to college in Miami for marine biology and I always wanted to work with marine life, not people. So it's really ironic that I'm not doing that and I'm doing this. Um, but I do like to do it at the beach so I can see the, the marine life in front of me. Um, my mother and father passed away when I was 20, 21 years old, um, one of old age and one of cancer. And my brother at the time had a restaurant called Oshin. And it was a French Japanese restaurant. He also had a place in the city called Marion's. And I used to wait tables for him at the restaurant in the summer when I wasn't in school. And then when my parents died, my brother was going to New York to open another restaurant with a friend and I kind of got roped into uh, working more. And then the chef didn't show up on a holiday weekend and I got put into the kitchen and didn't know my bum from my elbow to put it nicely and was petrified out of my mind that I was gonna be able to pull off a holiday weekend, but I was the only one that could do it. So I got in there, I did my best, but what happened was I totally fell in love with the energy of the kitchen, with food. Um, when my mother was terminally ill towards the end, we put her on a macrobiotic diet and she really came around, went into remission, and if my father had lived longer, she would have probably lived as long as him. But when he passed away, she kind of gave up. But what I did see was food made such an amazing transformation in her health. And it was a mind body experience. It was 
her will to want to live and the pure ingredients she was putting in her body. And, you know, I'm an 80s uh, teenager. So the 80s, 70s, 80s was all about processed food, um, <laughs> colored dinners. food, you know, Velveeta and Doritos and diet soda. So it wasn't my go-to to really be involved with the freshest ingredients. Um, but my father was born in 1898. So to him, this transformation of making food quicker and lighter and sugar-free and chemically induced, um, he didn't like it at all. So in our house, it was like this push-pull, you know, him cooking whatever he was making, growing his own tomatoes and strawberries in the backyard, and then me going out into the school or the world and being so enamored by all of this processed food, which at that time was like revolutionary. So, you know, everybody wanted to to imbibe in it. Yeah. And, um, but my roots were in, where does your food come from? And a father who was constantly saying, you know, when I was a kid, we didn't have card. When I was a kid, there weren't airplanes, you know. So <laughs> when I was a kid, we didn't have Velveeta. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I just fell in love with that energy and that chaos that comes along with working on a line in a kitchen in a busy rush and having people really love what you do and make memories in your in your venues and it wasn't just the food it was the entertainment piece the giving them a magical moment that they would always remember and feeling nurtured by an experience that I was able to be a part of and I just never stopped I never went I didn't go back to Miami my parents passed away and I ended up staying and working for my brother and then going to the city and working for him after that yeah so and I mean, I'm sure that Jean can 100 uh, percent uh, relate to some of the things that you stated because, you know, he's a little bit older than I am. So he kind of grew up in that generation where all the new like nuances of, you know, quick and easy foods were, were available. So well, I, was, Jean... I was a little jealous when you told me that you were an 80s child. And I'm like, oh, I'm getting old because I'm a 70-year-old. <laughs> you know? Um, I come through that period and I loved what you were talking about. And and it, it struck me. It, it was warming because I went to college for biology. I wanted to get into wildlife biology. And here I end up becoming a chef and a chef instructor and in the catering industry. And it very much was that I, you know, as a young child, I was inspired. My brother had a restaurant and that rush, that, that feeling, you know, that addiction that becomes of being part of it all. And then what you talked about with, you know, that creating memories experience. When I was teaching, I would always tell my students first day about being a chef. When you're the chef in a restaurant, two things occur. One, when you leave at night, you're walking out of your restaurant and everybody's telling you, thank you, wonderful meal. We're here for our anniversary. How great everything was you know giving you those accolades and then they're doing even the most important thing they're paying for food you just created and how wonderful an experience that is so you know thank you for for talking about that 
and your experience with macrobiotics, which is, you know, a, a, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. I, I had, I studied under a great macrobiotic chef, um, had a great experience on it. And I have very distinct opinions about today when people were talking about plant-based ingredients and this and this and this. And I think back to my experience in microbiotics and I'm like, you're very different because today you buy so many burgers and you might as well buy the area chemistry set. Uh, (laughs) You know, where, you know, when we were studying microbiotics, we were getting ingredients that were pure and simple and, and they were good for you. And I'm not necessarily sure that a lot of the movement today that we're seeing in plant-based and this and this is necessarily that way. Yeah, I think, you know, like anything uh, that becomes a trend and becomes mass consumed and mass marketed, there are a lot of people on the planet. There is no way we're going to keep up with growing, producing, fishing, catching food to the level we need to to feed everybody. So you start to experiment. And yes, technology has brought us a lot of new things with food that we didn't have before. But, you know, when you start looking at the ingredients of anything that's processed, including plant-based food, there's a lot of words in there you don't necessarily understand. And it's not just one ingredient, it's many. And, you know, I sometimes feel like we just overdo everything. Like I said, I was going to France tonight and I'm so looking forward because whenever I travel to European countries or a lot of countries, the food, the food is so simply created and not processed that, you know, at home I can't eat a lot of gluten, but I could probably eat bread all day long in France and cheese and, and not feel the same as I do here in America. We really have over-processed not just our food, but a lot of other things in our life too. <laughs> you know, you just hit on something that's so important that people don't realize. And you, I mean, you just said it as exactly true as it can be when you can go to other countries because we don't, or because they don't over-process things. You can necessarily, you can eat things that have gluten in it and not have the same reaction that you do when we work breads and we work flours the way we do and we add more chemicals to it and we're constantly bleaching things and doing other things and altering you know, their, their basic makeup to make it what they were, more shelf-stable or, or easier for the consumer. But when you go over there and things are simple, it, it's it's a better way. And I, and I, you know, when people talk about the whole gluten-free world and celiac and this and this and this, I think 100% the people to blame in our country are those processing plants, those, you know, chemical manufacturers that that we, we tried to make things easier and, and, and better. And we ended up going backwards. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've lived with this philosophy of less is more, you know, we put more into everything we do, we produce more and we consume more. And, you know, we don't, you know, half of the caloric intake that I think a lot of us take in every day, including myself sometimes <coughs> is, um, is, is fueled by these processed foods that make you want more of them, fueled by the stress that makes us eat, fueled by the, um, 
comfort that we get of that like oral fixation of food and memories that we have as a kid that we long for in our culture that we don't have in our day-to-day -day life so that all these factors you put them together and you know we don't take the time to make a meal like you know people are, you go to some people's homes when i travel and all day is making dinner mm -hmm. here it's like fast food takeout quick meals, you know, we're rushing in from work, we're rushing our kids somewhere, we're rushing to a meeting, we're rushing, rushing all the time, where food has lost its cultural foundation as part of our daily life, which, you know, I can't even do at home because I'm in the restaurants all the time, but the restaurant becomes that cultural place for me. It's, it's I agree 100% uh, on that and, and also contribute to I think some of the breakdown of some of the value systems we have, but we can talk about this topic all day. I'm going to pass this off to uh, Amaris here because I think you and I could bond and, and drink several bottles of wine and have <laughs> discussions about food for hours and hours and hours on this. I think we, we, uh, we share so much in, in that uh, mindset. Well, I yes, I, uh... We'll do I, that at another time. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say the commonality because I can I can throw myself into that conversation, too, because I'm going through, you know, obvious Jean knows this and I mentioned it to you. I'm moving, but I'm moving from a place where I never I never, I never really had time. Sorry, I never really had time to uh, to cook to appear a place where the person I'm moving in with is a friend but also a chef and already from just the get-go that it's you know fresh ingredients and I was like <laughs> literally last night she walked in and I was like I looked up and I was just like I'm really hungry and she like plopped a bunch of like um fresh ingredients like in front of me like fruits and vegetables and stuff and I was like just you know eating and I was happy as can be because it it was exactly what I wanted and what my body needed so um I will use that as a liaison into um tying around to the fact that you run a um foundation a pro you have a bunch of projects that are basically based in uh offering up communities who um who might be in food deserts or nutritionally in in you know nutritional de deserts and offering them opportunities to have those fresh ingredients and to eat out and in, indulge in foods that are healthier and fresher yeah we have a nonprofit called food for thought by the sea and our work has always been very grassroots in the community doing everything from gardening to art projects to surf lessons to workforce development training to giving out meal on holidays and during the pen feeding 3000 people a week through our nonprofit and uh, cooperative partnerships with other food banks in the area um, but i you know our organization works a lot with youth and they're from five years old to 25 years old. And it's funny when you're in these places that generally, generationally have kind of um, missed something. You hear these kids talk about their grandmother growing this and their aunt growing that. And when their Haitian you know, relative came or their um, relative came from Jamaica or wherever, they their experiences with food were very in the past and not the present. 
Mm. And, you know, hearing a kid pick a tomato off a plant and be like, oh, my God, I thought these came in a plastic um, box at the supermarket, like having no idea that they could grow this food in their backyard and sustain themselves. And then teaching them the monetary value of hospitality and working in hospitality and how it can be a living for them and a way to um, learn how to communicate better and learn about food. So we operate a food truck and we take the kids on the truck. This year we got a partnership with the Boys and Girls Club. We got an Impact 100 grant and we take kids and we teach them how to work in the front of the house, how to talk to guests, how to handle money, how to show up on time and not be on their cell phones all day long and really um, hone in on those soft skills that we're kind of missing in our culture right now for young people because of technology and all of these things that they're communicating with. They're not necessarily communicating with people that much and their skills have really gone down in that category. And then you add COVID to it where everybody was so isolated um, it's really hard for these kids so they're getting a combination of learning about food learning about people and seeing that you know you don't have to be wealthy to have good food you can put a little plot in your backyard I mean I've got tomatoes coming out the out my ears I'm giving them to everybody around me because we have such a great tomato season and things are just growing off the hook so you know luckily I like tomatoes <laughs> otherwise I I wouldn't be eating much but you know I think we can teach kids how to do this we also are involved in a company called Two River Mushrooms which um, is an organic New Jersey supplier grower and supplier of mushrooms to restaurants and specialty food stores in New Jersey, Pennsylvania. Now we're going into New York and we teach the kids about mushrooms and not only the the food value, the medicinal value and the value that they have to regenerate the soil and the earth so that we can continue to farm in this country or farm inside where we don't have access to land and still be able to grow really good food that's healthy, nutritious, fun, and tasty. Yes. And it, and I feel like that's extremely important for, for everyone to know. Now, I know that you are, you know, a, on a sad note, you know, but also because of the impact that the pandemic had on everyone, including yourself, um, you are selling, you know, your restaurants, your businesses that are located in Asbury Park. Um, but I also know that you were offered up a opportunity for uh, through the James Beard Foundation last year for women, um, women's, sorry, women's and entrepreneurial uh, leadership. And that was through Cornell University. How has that kind of impacted you with everything that's been going on and with the Whitechapel uh, projects? So the WELL program, um, I've tried to get a James Beard Award my whole career, but I've always had these restaurants like the ones in Asbury that were almost too much fun for people to take seriously on a culinary level. Although, you know, the amount of work that was going into making this food seemed like it wasn't serious. 
was probably more work than a serious restaurant at times. Um, but, you know, I never got the award, but then last year I got a call that I was accepted into the well program and it couldn't have come at a better time because one, we were in the end of COVID. So I had a lot of free time where I could actually be in front of a computer and take a serious course. It also honestly pushed me into making some major changes in my business and my life and probably was like not the impetus for selling the Asbury restaurants, but the real push I needed to be associated with all these powerful women from all over the country in all different kinds of businesses, both retail, restaurant, um, hospitality, who were also affected by the transformation that we were having in this group. And quite a few women made some pretty big life changes coming out of this. And, you know, it was almost like a mastermind and a Cornell education around hospitality. We got a lot of tools, but we got so much support from women. And when you're a woman, especially in the hospitality industry, when I started, I was one of two female chefs in New Jersey and Alice Waters. <laughs> and that was about it. Um, nobody really was making an impact back then. And when I got into the business, I always thought that, you know, it's going to be filled with women because women are liberal and they want to take care of people and their grandmothers and their mothers always cooked at home. But that wasn't the case. It was a very male dominated industry and really hard to to break into back then. And probably the reason why I only worked for myself and my brother my whole career. I opened a restaurant when I was 19. So I didn't really have to deal with all that. But going through this program, I got to really hone in on some things about my career, myself, and feel good about and empowered by the knowledge that I had gained over the years, mostly from making a ton of mistakes because I'm self-taught in business and as a chef, but having a support group to help me realize I wasn't the only one that was feeling this way throughout my career. And, and now I have these resources, both with Cornell, with James Beard and with all these women and it pushed me to sell everything and concentrate on one and say, listen, I don't need all these restaurants anymore. I don't need all these employees in my life coming out of COVID was really tough for anybody in the industry dealing with labor. And I just really want to get back to my roots of where the food comes from, how it's made and the passion of the people that I work with. And when you have 250 employees, in a very touristy party town like Asbury, it was really hard to do that after a while for me. And I felt like I was always selling my soul to get through the financial burden of the day. Well, I I thank you for sharing that with um, all of us and with our listeners. Um, and unfortunately we, we did run out of time. So I want, so that, you know, people can find out more about you. They can, you know, look you up if they need to have an event catered or, you know, visit you or support and one of your foundations. Um, where can they find you online? 
Um, I have a website, MarilynSloshback.com, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, <laughs> as well as WhitechapelProjects.com is the restaurant site. Ocean Love is our new product we're launching, an organic moringa um, hair, hair and body oil. And then we're launching a cocoa boat chocolate line in about six months. So that'll be the cocoaboat.com. So all right. that's kind of all the things right now. And then Food <laughs> for Thought by the Sea is the nonprofit. All right. Thank you so much for joining us on Food Farms and Chefs, Marilyn. Thank you for having me. Sorry, I have so many things to say. <laughs> no, we'll definitely have to bring you back again at a later date. But for the time being, we thank you for joining us. And we will be right back after the short break. Hi, and welcome back to Food Farms and Chefs. I am very happy to introduce you to Anna Alturi, who is the corporate executive chef for Super Frico at The Hook from the brand new Spiegel World menu and show at Caesars in Atlantic City. Anna, welcome to Food Farms and Chefs. Thank you for having me. Well, Anna, welcome. So such a pleasure to have you with us. Always love to talk to women chefs in the corporate world that are, you know, kind of attacking that glass ceiling that was held by men so many years. And, you know, to, to see, you know, what you have done with yourself and, 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 you know, a wonderful young age even as well, which is, you know, something that that says so much about your dedication to the food industry and the food profession. Tell our listeners a little bit about one, your you know, inspiration to get into the kitchen and then two about your education and your early days of, you know, training and, and uh, your first steps into the world before we get into what you're doing now. Sure. Yeah, uh, to keep a long story kind of short, I grew up um, on a vegetable farm right outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, which is where I kind of, I got my food ethos, you know, my my culinary moral compass, if you will, um, kind of stemmed from that. I grew up in kind of like a South Philadelphia Italian uh, household as well. So the food was always, you know, core to our our family gatherings and things like that. I grew up with a very talented chef of a grandmother, or, you know, she wasn't a chef. She just cooked at home, but she was very talented um, and always, you know, included me in all of her, in all of her cooking and all that stuff. So it was, you know, uh, it was a very interactive childhood with food. And that's kind of what, it was an easy, an easy answer for me. You know, what did you want to be when you grow up? I was like, well, I don't want to do anything other than this. Well, you had two absolutely wonderful foundations in that aspect. And, growing up and understanding what fresh vegetables and, and fresh produce really is. And then growing up and understanding that food is a process. It's an all day event. It's, it brings people together. It's a language. It's, it's love. It's so many other things. And, you know, on my end, our listeners don't get this, but we get to see, I get to see through zoom, the smile when you talk about that. And it's really, you know, evident for somebody to to see the joy that you get in food so Definitely. growing up through that what was the next step for you uh right out of high school I went to the Culinary Institute of America up in Hyde Park New York um that was you know a great experience for me it was awesome for networking uh for my foundation as a chef it was you know integral um and from there I kind of moved I moved to New York and worked here and there, I worked as a culinary educator for a while. Um, 
and in various restaurants and then uh, stumbled upon consulting and found a love for that because it, you know, it was a great creative outlet for me. It was a great um, outlet for, you know, leadership opportunities and things like that. And I found that I was able to create these little communities and these little food hubs around the world, which was really an interesting um, outlet in the food, you know, in the food world, because you don't really get that when you're in a stationary kitchen. So I, I fell in love with that kind of aspect of helping people pursue their dreams. Um, and then about two years ago, I was helping open the Super Frico that exists in Las Vegas today. And, you know, loved, loved who my boss would be, loved my, the employees that I worked with, the, you know, the, the mindset around food and hospitality. And they asked me to be a part of their full-time team opening restaurants. Um, and I've been doing that ever since. And that's what brought me to the hook in Atlantic City. So it, it's wonderful to have a full 360 coming back to this area. You growing up just outside of Philadelphia and mm-hmm. doing all that. Um, and I'm sure there was a little bit of culture shock when you went away and you came back and Philadelphia did become and, and Philadelphia Atlantic City, the, the area did become this kind of mecca for the food industry. Uh, I was traveling a little bit last week. And one of the things I noticed is, you know, so many references to the Philadelphia food scene in other parts of the country. And I, I love that, you know, we're, we're getting that those accolades now, you know, other than just being known for, you know, cheesesteaks or, you know, pizza or soft pretzels, but, you know, people are recognizing Philadelphia as a food scene. What was that like coming back from Vegas and now back into your roots where you grew up and seeing that change? Yeah, I mean, I think I've, I've always recognized Philadelphia as kind of a, a, a culinary hub. It was definitely more off the beaten path. I mean, they have such a vibrant, like, cultural food scene, Cambodian food, Mexican food. Um, it was just, you know, a little less publicized and you had to look a little harder for it. So I've always really, you know, grabbed inspiration from those kinds of restaurants I ate at growing up. But yeah, in the last couple of years, Philadelphia has really offered itself as an awesome jumping point for chefs, you know, cheaper real estate than New York and an equally as curious and engaged diners. So it has been um, really awesome to see Philadelphia and surrounding cities kind of bloom from that. Um, Atlantic City, I actually grew up going to as a child during the summers because my grandparents lived there and gambled there and did all their, you know, their stuff there. So I, I spent the summers on the boardwalk and it has changed so much. Uh, and we're, you know, we're really excited to be part of that, that change and, um, you know, kind of giving Atlantic City the, the restaurant and show and the, the passionate staff that it deserves. And being part of, you know, the casino world, that whole corporate world is a, is a whole different thing too. But, you know, what you're doing there is such a, you know, yes, you're, you're part of a casino environment, but you're really such a microcosm of food and uh, cuisine and, and what you're doing. So it's a whole unique opportunity, I think, that, people need to experience and come down and and see what you're doing down there. Uh, How is it being, you know, welcomed? I mean, I'm sure, well, I know you have lines and and great business every day. Um, You know, what's, what's some of the common feedback you're getting now from other type of businesses that are in casinos down there? Yeah. I mean, I think that Atlantic city has also always been like a, a strong hospitality city. Um, I think that they've been slighted by a lot of different things over the years, but um, the other businesses have been 
incredible and, you know, so welcoming to us. It's felt like, you know, when we first showed up to Atlantic City, we were like, what is kind of like, what is this place? How are we going to make a, a successful business here? Um, and we've really been learning from those that have done it and are still doing it. And they have just been like so excited to have, you know, in, in a lot of cases, outsiders coming in and, and, you know, disrupting the norm a little bit, which has um, been way better received than I could have ever imagined. It's been really awesome to see. It's been like, you know, such a, a strong community has been built just in the last few months. Well, that is wonderful to hear. It's something that was much needed down there. Uh, you know, being old enough to have watched from the early days of, you know, casino gambling coming into Atlantic City and seeing, you know, what was promised to the community and, and you know, what actually took place. And then, you know, watching the changes through the year, you really are a catalyst. And what you're doing is a big catalyst for that community. I know Ambrose is chopping at the bit as well, so I'm going to kind of step back and let her go for a little yeah. bit. But, you know, thank you for making, you know, the impact that you're doing down there and, and really, um, you know, being a foundation for a future step of the of the area. Yeah, thank you. We're, we're really excited to be in that position. And that is an exciting position to be in, too, because you guys um, kind of are folded into a multifaceted uh, location where you can not only just, you know, wa- go there to watch, to, to eat and indulge in cocktails and food, but you can a- actually go and see a show that is... And it was quite interesting because I saw some of the snippets of uh of, of the show and it's almost like a bur well, I feel like I don't I shouldn't explain it, but I feel like it's a burlesque show mixed with like uh a Broadway show mixed with comedy. <laughs> so what is it like for you marrying mirroring the entertainment factor with the menu? Yeah, I mean, that has been the most exciting thing I think about my job thus far um, is thinking about the menu and the dining experience as more of like a, a well-rounded hospitality experience rather than just the food. You know, I'm involved in situations and, and decisions like what is the dance that goes along with the seafood tower that we're serving and how does the seafood tower, you know, speak to the act that goes with it. So it's it's been a really unique challenge that I've been really um, just kind of inspired. And I, I, I grab so much inspiration from, you know, the the production managers and the producers and the the um, acts, which are all like so incredible. It really is, it's easy to want to do really well around people like that. So I think the food speaks to um, our overall ethos, which is just like spare no expense, do bad, bad stuff and, you know, make things really incredible. Um, and that's kind of our, our method of, of madness for all of our hospitality. So it's, it's pretty incredible. And I mean, speaking of incredible, I have to ask because on multiple occasions when I was doing research, you guys, and you might even have referenced this on the actual website, but it's the psychedelic culinary experience so i'm wondering how the culinary experience ties into the psychedelic part Mm -hmm. yeah so this has been kind of a back and forth for a while is what does psychedelic italian american mean 
Um, and to me, it means it's like the marriage of that nostalgic Italian feeling that I grew up with, the the communal dining, the the kind of like interactive and thought-provoking dining that you have eating with really close friends and family. Um, and then flavors that you wouldn't expect in a, you know, a Italian-American meal. So, you know, we use things like ponzu and Maggie in our chicken parm and people are like, why does this taste so good? It's like, why not use the the ingredients and techniques from other cultures that you know people love and adore and understand to make Italian American food just a little bit um, more unique and maybe not better but it's definitely um, our style and I, I it's not fusion it's just using um, these little building blocks to make our menus a little bit more interesting a little bit more umami forward um, and using techniques that make the ingredients really shine. Um, so that's kind of, that's what we're going for. And it's funny that you use the word umami because while you were, you know, trying to, to find the right words to describe, I was like, umami, umami. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, I was yeah, looking, definitely. yeah. And I was looking at your menus, plural, because, uh, obviously you have your dinner menu your- and then your cocktail menu, and then you have a bottle menu, which I thought was like interesting, um. I did not look at your bottle menu. However, I have spied your actual dinner menu. And I mean, just the stuffed lobster, the, you know, the, the, I think you had ravioli on there. You had the table side, which is a throwback to how dining used to be where they would create salads or whatnot to on table side. And you have a mozzarella, um, we'll say artist. (laughs) <laughs> who who yeah. kind of stretches the mozzarella in front of you. So I'm assuming that you guys make the mozzarella in-house. Yeah, definitely. Um, we make all of our mozzarella for all of our dishes. Our pizzas, our chicken parm um, is made in the back of house. And then if you order tableside mozzarella, uh, we'll have one of our cheese artisans come out and um, pull and form mozzarella in front of your eyes. There's, you know, if you are so inclined, they'll tell you about, you know, all of the, the, the sugars that are, what is, what is happening with the scientific um, side of the, the table side mozzarella. And then you are presented with this like beautiful ball of warm mozzarella with all of your little charcuterie accoutrements, you know, mortadella and marinated tomatoes. And uh, it's just like a, it's, it's just a really fun way to have a really classic dish. Um, just like the best version of it that you can find anywhere. I feel like I need to pass off the baton to Gene because I feel like because he is a chef like- too and he has a wealth of information on that along with I know he's had more dining experiences than I have over over the years. So I'm going to pass the baton on to him because he can probably relate to you and what you just said with the the sugars and, you know, mm-hmm. and whatnot. So, Gene. Well, you know, I I go a completely different way and I was loving your description of you know the psychedelic influence in the food and touching on the nostalgia of it all and, and what you're doing there is just absolutely fabulous as a child of the 70s when anything I see is uh you know psychedelic I go a whole different route but we're not going to go there right. <laughs> um you know the idea of tableside mozzarella to me is, you know, the the oysters of the 90s. It's such a sensual experience. It's, you know, watching a chef pull mozzarella and watching it go from this, 
you know, rough curd to this extremely smooth, sweet delicacy just by, you know, playing with the temperature of it and stretching it and refolding it and doing that, you know, is something that every person needs to experience. Uh, you know, I, as a culinary educator like you, I wish they would experience it with their own hands, but you know, you're offering up that experience right there table side. And it truly is what food should be, in my opinion. It is art, and you're bringing that artistic influence right to the guest right there and, and allowing them to see, you know, what's capable, what, you know, what it's like to go from curd. And I don't know, Amaris, if you've ever pulled mozzarella, but it is one of the most wonderful things in the entire world to do. It's a simple process to do. It's an extremely complicated process to do at the level that you're doing it because of the quality, you know, the outstanding quality you're producing. Um, what are, you know, <laughs> the most commonly requested dishes on the menu? And I don't want to even call them dishes, presentations, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, artistic expressions on your menu. What are the most ordered, you mean? Yes. Yeah, uh, well, tableside mozzarella is coming hot at number one. Um, then chicken parm is kind of our bread and butter. It's, you know, it really speaks to like what we are as a, at the core of our restaurant. Um, it, you know, it has everything that, that, that is super frico. Um, obviously things like the fried mozzarella, people love the red sauce and the cheese. It's just, it's, who doesn't love that? Um, in Atlantic City, we have a couple other heavy hitters. Our tomahawk is is out of this world. We koji age it um, in a shio koji for a couple of days uh, before it's flame grilled, and it's just like the most you know, mind boggling steak experience you can possibly have anywhere. I think. Um, and my grandmother's meatball recipe is on the menu in Atlantic City, and that is, I think, maybe number two top seller, uh, which she is you know, tickled pink to hear about. So that those are our, you know, our heavy hitters. So is there anything that you uh, are in the process of working on that uh, you want to, you know, tip our readers off or our listeners off to uh, about, you know, new items that you're developing? I know you, you know, constantly are working on, on wonderful projects and, you know, what else you could you know, bring to our, our listeners and bring to the culinary audience out there? Yeah, definitely. Um, there's a million things in the works, but I think the one of of most notoriety, uh, which is launching, I believe, this weekend, uh, is our hot seafood tower. And it's kind of a play on a cold seafood tower, it has all the same, you know, seafood elements, your lobster, your oysters, your clams, but everything is in a hot presentation. So it's Clams Casino. It's actually Clams Chowder Casino. Um, <laughs> grilled oysters, poached lobster, Dungeness crab. Um, and it comes on this big, huge, beautiful, custom seafood tower. It's bright purple. And there's a little song and dance that comes with it if you are to order it. So that's uh, how we kind of incorporate our, you know, the show into the restaurant and into the food and things like that. It's, it's a really fun uh, dish. And it was just a an answer to the the kind of the melting ice sad seafood tower that you can find at some casino places. Um, 
and yeah, it's just really fun. I have well, to thank jump. you so much for turning up the heat on the other casinos and making them <laughs> yeah. step up and say, you know, that seafood tower you've been doing is is not adequate. And, you know, we could do so much more. I love that. I think that that is uh, such a wonderful statement and, and uh, you know, really, you know, showing the possibilities to people. I, I, I just that's what I truly love about what you're creating is that you are pushing you know, the limits and, and showing people possibilities that they never had, you know, that, okay, uh, I'm just going to get chicken parm for dinner. But you're like, but if we do like three little tweaks on it, look at what we get. Right. And I think that that is so important today. You know, we, we have that foundation. and You talked about it in your education. You know, you had a foundation going in that you went to the Culinary Institute, which gives you an incredible foundation. But then later on, it asked you to push those foundations and think outside the box. And, you know, it's what really is unique about what you're doing. Um, I was, was going to say, I'm going to jump in there because one of the things that I wanted to mention in in this is kind of a playoff of what you just said is, you you know, you are introducing people to to different ingredients because with your cacio pepe, um, you don't just use a regular peppercorn you're actually infusing it with the asian peppercorn which i had the luxury of being able to taste it like just right off the vine um and i have to say it's it's quite interesting it's i i feel like the atypical peppercorns that you know most people are familiar with like i can't just pop one in my mouth i i will spit it out immediately but the asian ones i'm like oh that's good and i actually want to keep eating them yeah, the Szechuan peppercorn cachoe pepe, um, or the tingly cachoe pepe, uh, that is making its way onto the menu for the fall. Uh, and that is just part of my like interesting ingredient integration. Um, we're taking it kind of slow and getting everybody, you know, getting everybody's feet wet. Um, and then we're going to start, you know, bringing out the big guns in the fall with all the, the kind of kooky stuff. I mean, I'm wondering, though, because you do the table side mozzarella, are you guys going to be uh, making it off of the big wheel that I I mean, I know IG has some some restaurants that do that, but they like kind of take the pasta and the heat of the pasta, you know, they they integrate it. Yeah, we have done that for a few events in Las Vegas. Um, and I think that for this specific dish, we're going to keep it in the back of house, but we have a few different uh, table side preparations that are in the works that um, are maybe a little bit more unexpected. Nice. Now I real quick, cause yeah. we only have a couple of minutes left, but uh, I want to touch base on your cocktail menu, which I don't know if you have your hand in, but you know, and also your dessert menu, which I'm sure you do. <laughs> so yeah, the cocktail menu. Yeah. Is, is in the hands of my counterpart, Nico Novak, who is like the greatest, I don't even know if I would want to call him a mixologist. I don't know if that's the right word, but he's so incredibly talented um, and the food works so well with the cocktails and we have a really similar creative process. So we work really well together and it's, you know, I can trust with all of my being that the cocktail menus for all of our restaurants are going to be so perfect and so complimentary to my food. And it's, it's pretty amazing, but I can't speak to the cocktails as, as you know, as he could. However, but the, the dessert, dessert menu, <laughs> Yeah, dessert menu. Yeah, the dessert menu um, is also kind of something that's in the works. We're scaling it up as we speak. 
we have one of my favorite things, which is a fennel ice cream. And that's just a really standard gelato base that's infused with fennel seeds and fennel pollen and is served with just like this delicious yuzu olive oil and sea Hmm. salt. And it's just, it's this really simple, um, it's not really ingredient heavy. There's not a ton of things in it, but when you taste it, it's like the, first of all, it's the best palate cleanser. Um, but it's also, you know, it kind of reminds you of like a, a pizzelle or like something your grandmother would make, but it's elevated and it's sweet and it's, it's really, it's really good. And it's unexpected too, which is fun. I wonder if, uh, if you created a fennel, uh, fennel, fennel cello, if that like to complement it, like on the side. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they've got those, they've got all sorts of anise liqueurs, but it's, it, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> Do a little pairing. You heard it first. <laughs> um, yeah. So in the last few seconds that we have left, uh, where can we, our listeners find yourself online as well as obviously um, <laughs> Super Frico? Yeah, on Instagram, um, I, I'm not super present with my chef stuff, but you can definitely find what uh, me and Nico and all of our performers are, are you know, that's at the hook AC or just Super Frico, which covers Atlantic City and Vegas. And it's a fun account to follow. It keeps your feed nice and bright. Of course. Um, and yeah, and I saw like some of the acrobatics and stuff like that that are on there too. So mm-hmm. it's super fun to follow. Well, thank you so much, Anna, for joining us on Food Farms and Chefs. Thank you so much for having me. It was awesome talking to you guys. All right. And we will be right back after this short break. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Food Farms and Chefs. After two amazing uh, women chefs there, we're going to talk a little bit about some other culinary stuff going on in the world. And one of the unique things that I just discovered on on a little bit of culinary R&D I uh, ventured down to the Smoky Mountain region, the Gatlinburg Pigeon Ford region. I wanted to do a little bit of research into barbecue, uh, a little bit more. As many of you know, have ever heard our show, barbecue is one of the favorite things that we talk about. We love barbecue. Um, so I happened to be down there doing a little bit of research and uh, development work in the Great Smoky Mountains, um, which is, you know, if you don't know, you know, quintessential for two of my favorite things in the entire world whiskey and barbecue you can't go wrong and you can find it everywhere so we did a little bit of a whiskey tasting while i was out there i happened to do uh, several whiskey tastings um and I happened to befriend a local uh that was the tour guide for uh, old smoky and uh we really had an incredible experience at the Old Smoky Distillery where we sampled 13 different moonshines and whiskeys and bourbons and uh, flavors before noon. Um, so which started a wonderful day going there. Um, but we had a, an opportunity to go from their 127 proof all the way down and really spend time with a local that was invested in the family learning about old smoky which happens to be the most uh visited uh moonshine distillery in the area they just built a brand new plant out in the countryside revitalizing the community down there doing things like that but when everybody was away and you know all the rest of the guests were gone 
I had an opportunity to sit back and, and do what I do all the time and say, so uh, I love barbecue. Where am I going to go? And of course I got, you know, here and here and here and the standard answers. And I'm like, no, let me rephrase that. It's your day off and you're taking me for barbecue. Where are you taking me? And the answer that I got was a place called Preachers. So I thought the name was cool. And then I asked, she said, yeah, it's called Preachers because he is a preacher. And, you know, I looked it up, did a little research, found where it's at in Sevierville there uh, between Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge, kind of right there in the mountains. Um, went for a little drive, um, stumbled upon them and, and, and went in. Now, Preachers is only open Thursday through Saturday. Well, obvious reasons he's not open on Sunday is because he is a preacher, preacher Sam. Um, but what I found was amazing. I walked in, and and first of all, the hospitality down there is just amazing. But I go in and and tell him, you know, this is what I'm looking for. Sam comes right out. We're talking, and and different things. He says, "Well, you got to try the sampler. It's you know three and a half pounds. This and this and this and." the freshness of the ingredients it was all about a dry rub it wasn't heavily sauced matter of fact they didn't really even put sauce on everything they you know they gave you a choice they had you know a traditional little bit of mustard sauce they had a a light you know vinegar based sauce and then they had a little bit more of a tomato based sauce you could add it if you wanted but their smokehouse which used uh they were they were about 225 they were running uh, all day smoke. It was a mixture of hickory and oak that they were doing. Um, it was just phenomenal. But what really got to me was the freshness of the ingredients. My wife, uh, Susan, commented that the smoked chicken, she thought that they literally had, you know, processed the chicken right out back. Uh, if you get my drift on that, that it was that fresh. The white chicken chili was to die for. My sampler platter, uh, they didn't do a burnt end kind of thing with brisket. They did it with pork tips. They had, you know, the traditional pulled pork. They had great pork ribs that were just falling off the bone and everything like that. And then they did some brisket. They had chicken and they did a sausage that they make themselves. So I'm going to tell you, if you happen to be down in the Tennessee area, you got to go find preachers and you have to go and have some spirits at Old Smoky Mountain, um, which, by the way, does the, the moonshine cherries as well. It's a big thing. And they also have moonshine pickles, which are really good, too. But, you know, go down and explore them. The thing that caught me the most, got talking to Sam a little bit and his roots. He has this love of cast iron cooking is his new thing and it comes back from the fact that his grandmother was a camp cook for the lumbering industry and that's what his influence was we got talking about that he said a lumberjack down there is on a 15,000 calorie a day meal that's what they're that's what they need to take in breakfast, lunch, and dinner, 15,000 calories a day. She would prepare for 40 people a day, plus her family, using all cast iron, 15,000 calories a day. And on Saturdays, every one of the lumberjacks got a cake as well. 
and done all in cast iron. So he's now like taking over this reign and developing this whole line of cast iron cooking and doing things like that. I also love finding out from behind the scenes that this is kind of Dolly's place where Dolly goes to have barbecue. She took, uh, you know, one of the late night show hosts down there that was down doing a piece about Dollywood. It's where she took him, you know, for barbecue when he said, where do we go for real barbecue? Um, it was the best sweet tea I've ever had in addition. And it was the, for my nostalgia purposes, I've been looking for a place all my life. I actually start to tear up thinking about this, a place all my life that makes my mother's coleslaw. Um, I grew up, my mother wasn't a great cook. She was a good cook. And I have a love of coleslaw and she tapped on it. So in the Great Smoky Mountains, head down, find Preacher's Barbecue. Tell me you heard about it on food farms and chefs. I promise you it's life-changing. I have to ask before uh, we sign off, did they make pork belly, smoked pork belly? He did not. Um I had uh, a pork belly, so I had a play on a BLT that was done with pork belly, so it was uh, a PBLT, <laughs> uh, you know, that uh, was absolutely to die for. I actually had that in Dollywood. Um, it was wonderful, but, you know, one thing he did do is he does some desserts. He does, like, a kind of sticky bun that he makes at a cast iron skillet. Another thing that is simply life changing. It that sounds awesome, and I, I mean the recommendation couldn't have come from a better person. So happy Labor Day, everyone! Uh, I know it was yesterday. If you're listening on the radio or on Friday, you know have have a great weekend. But if you're going to travel, check out what the plate the places that Gene just recommended. Check out you know, Atlantic City's restaurant scenes, Rico, and, and, you know, look up, uh, look up some of the things that Marilyn has going on, but thank you and have a great weekend. Have a great week, everyone. (laughs) 